Growing up in my home, it was essential that we had one thing, and that apparently was a Bible that was illustrated. This was the one given to me by my grandmother. It's like from 1965. It's got some old illustrations. I remember this, this one of David and Goliath. It was just like, oh, that's so cool. And then so many of these odd little kind of scenes from the Bible, and it's just old illustrations trying to teach us and tell us about Jesus, trying to get us inspired. And then my kids grow up, and they get a completely different version of an illustration. They get the action Bible. Yeah, man. I mean, comic book illustration. Look at that Goliath, man. He's awesome. And so we get these pictures and comic book strips and these incredible action scenes of what's going on in the Bible times. And then on top of that, as now as my kids have gotten older, we now get an opportunity to watch The Chosen. I don't know if you've seen it. It's an incredible opportunity to just kind of dive into the world of the disciples and Jesus and get to know maybe what was going on a little bit. And it's, it's speculative, but it's a blast and it's totally worth it. And with all these different illustrations, movies and books and different things, man, we would think we get it. We get what the gospel's about. We know it. And yet here's the problem. Many of us can step back and ask, that's awesome. That's what it looked like then. But what is the gospel supposed to look like today? In our world of politics, in our world of division, in the United States, in the rest of the world, what is the gospel supposed to look like today? You know, this is the 4th of July, and we're glad that uh, you are with us today watching this, and I, I hope that you have a great Independence Day. But it reminds us that in this time, in this day, we're living in a different time period. We're living in a radically different era. And we need to see how that gospel is supposed to truly be illustrated. Well, you'd be shocked. If we were to ask the question of where you were to go to really see the gospel illustrated, I think people wouldn't think first and foremost that it's the church. But that's exactly what it's supposed to be. See, the church is the gospel lived. The real church, when we think about church and we look at what the Bible is saying, it's going to tell us that the gospel is lived out in the church, that the church is actually the gospel lived out. It's illustrated in our lives. I guess another way to put it is if you want to see how Jesus would have done something, then go to the church. That sentence right there, I think, challenges a lot of people in our current culture. They would say, no way, because the church is sinful, and because the church is a mess. And yet, when the church is seeking to follow the word of God and be after Jesus, man, you're going to see that that's how it's lived out. I believe that's what Paul would say. And I believe that's what the intention of the scripture is telling us. And I get this from the book of 1 Timothy. Now, we've been working through the book of 1 Timothy as a church in this new series, The Illustrated Gospel. We're going to go back to it. And if you've got your Bible, grab it. You're going to want to join us, open it up there, follow along with us. Because what's going on is Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy. He's left him in Ephesus. He says, go there. Actually, sent him to Ephesus. So go out there. Make sure that everything's good. And he steps into one of the most diverse cultures in the world. They have gods, and they've got all these different worldviews, and they've got these different temples and cults and all these things. And the church is growing up in this multicultural, multi-God-oriented world. And as he's supposed to be bringing a church together, they've had some false teachers rise up in the church, leading the church away into legalism and into these rules and laws in order to defend against sin and give themselves a sense of power or whatever. And Timothy's been told, go kick these leaders out. They're done. In fact, reinstitute new leaders. And so we've looked at the center of the book and we've seen that new leadership is supposed to have this character and all these things. We just finished that series. And now you can go back onto our YouTube channel and other places and you can check that out. But now Timothy's going to change, or Paul is going to change his angle with Timothy. He's going to say, hey, now that we've got the leadership stuff all straightened out, 
here's what we need to do. We need to make the church be the church. We need to get it back to being an illustration of the gospel because the church is supposed to be the gospel lived. But the problem is, I believe that the church, even in today's society, is losing track of what really inspires the illustration. You see, as we dive into this, what you're going to, what you're going to get into is the reality that we are supposed to be an inspired group of people by the gospel. See, the gospel needs to inspire our illustrations. Every artist is inspired by illustrations. Uh, kind of a secret for me is I get inspired when I write music because I'm reading from the Word of God and something clicks and I'm like, oh, that's an awesome tune or note or whatever. And I start trying to write some poetry. It's not always great, but that's what I need. I need an inspiration. Uh, a dirty secret in my life is when I'm watching an um, actual television show or maybe I'm watching a movie and I resonate with one of the characters. I have a tendency to walk away with the same swagger, using the same language, trying to be, maybe not the language, but you know, trying to have that same stature and it's like, oh, what am I doing? And it's because we emulate what inspires us. We, we start to imitate those things. And for us as the church, what we're supposed to emulate and be inspired by is the gospel so that when we enter into our lives, we illustrate it. But when we've lost track of that inspiration, when we've lost track of that gospel, we won't live it outright. And so Paul begins an entire journey of challenging the church to return to being the gospel illustrated. He starts here in verse 14. So let's take a look at this as you get your Bibles and we open it up. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, we'll stop right there for a second. What he is saying right here is, look, guys, you and I, we need to be a people who are remembering to be the truth. He, he says, I want to come to you soon. I want you to get out there because the bottom line is as the leader goes, so goes the church. And so he's saying, Timothy, I'm going to tell you how to lead because that's how the church is going to go. And so if you, I'm delaying, so I'm going to remind you, I'm going to tell you how to go. This word know is better translated, I believe, recall, remember, because Timothy's been planting churches with Paul. He knows what it looks like to run the church. And so he says, I'm writing to you to remind you so that you can recall how you ought to behave how one person ought to behave in the household of God. In other words, church, we need to recall how to be the church. Olive Branch, we need to recall how to be the church. Now, the church is not always what we think it is. There was um, a really popular show in the... Um, in the 2000s called Friends. I don't know, you guys probably just watched Reunion, those of you who are Friends fans out there. And what was resonating about Friends was that here's a group of random odd people whose families aren't that great who got together and became a new family. Family from different places. Family with different ends and odds, and they became a new family. And that's what resonated with an America that's been divided by our commuter system, divided up into all over the place um, challenges and lack of communication. And so now families become something that's weaker. Families become something that's more about my friends, more about my interests, more about my people around me, more about my, my group than it is about the actual blood relatives that we grew up with. And what I find interesting is that this is a longing that we have to have a unity with people, and that's exactly what the church actually was. It's what the church actually is. It's not friends that's going to get you that. It's coming under the banner of Christ into His people, His gathering, His household. You see, the church is not a time. It's not a place. It's a people. 
It is all the Christians and all of the Jewish people that have come together in belief in Jesus Christ, right? It's all of us who trust in Jesus throughout the eons, throughout history, and every culture, tongue, tribe, and nation that come under Jesus. That's the church. It has so much broader, so much bigger, and we are brothers and sisters. I guarantee you this is true. I've been to other countries, and it is the weirdest thing that the second I meet another true believer, there is a resonance. We have some connection. We are brothers and sisters. Though we may speak different languages, though we may have totally different cultures, suddenly I have such a baseline with them regardless that we talk about Jesus. We talk about the same scriptures. We talk about the same Lord. We talk about the same goals. Our hearts are wed together. It is beautiful. Because we need to remember the church isn't just all a branch gathering together. It is that, but it's beyond that. We're part of a global movement. We're part of a global family. And it's a universal group of people. See, that's why Paul calls it the household of God. Look back down there with me. He says, look, I want you to know how, to, how you ought to live in the household of God. That means the family of God. And the church is the family of God. We're to be a people who are united and connected as a family. And the church, he emphasizes, is God's family. Notice how he does that. Again, look one more time. I hope to come soon, but I am willing, writing these things to you so that, you, so that if I delay, you may remember, you may recall how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Man, he emphasizes this is God's family. This is God's gathering. This is God's people. We are under God's household. He is our Father. This is so critical because when we understand this, this is a special connection we have with God when it comes to church. Not only is it a special connection with other brothers and sisters, we get to call God our Father. Now, there's a lot of people out there that want to claim, oh, God's everybody's Father because He's created everybody and they're all His sons and daughters. And Well, there may be a little bit of that in the Scriptures here and there, That's not what the New Testament is saying. The New Testament is claiming that you and I have been born again. And as we've been born again and trusting Jesus Christ's work on the cross to bear our sins and to give us life, we now have a new family, the church. We have a new father, our father in heaven. And the Father, Jesus' Father, God Himself becomes a relationship with us that is critical. We are His sons and daughters. We are connected with Him in an intimate way. This is a special relationship that we have. And then there's a way that we ought to behave, a way that we ought to live. Because guess what? Family has identity, doesn't it? I mean, in your family, I don't know about uh, maybe uh, you had a family that had these kind of sayings where it's like, uh, Harris does these kinds of things. In my family with my kids, we'll play a game and one of my kids wants to get up in the middle because he starts losing. He wants to quit and walk away. And I say, no, Harris says, we finished the game we started. You don't quit in the middle of something. You keep going. You make it all the way through, even if you're losing. Right? You want to be faithful. And that's the idea that we want to instill in my kids because that's what we want Harris's to be. We want to be faithful people. You know, maybe you have some of those quirks or traits in your family that marks you off. They go, oh, that's so much like your mom. You're such a, and they mention your mother's maiden name or whatever. But you have these characteristic marks that mark you as family. Same thing is true about God's family. In fact, it's so critical as an identity that it is above and beyond all other forms of identity. The church family is an identity that goes above and beyond our ethnicity, our skin color, our economic states, status, where we live, our nationalities. It goes beyond even our birth family. 
Notice what Jesus says about following him. He actually said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying this. He's not actually saying truly hate them because he'll tell you, love your neighbor, love your enemy. How can you hate your mom and dad? What he's telling you is, listen, your identity is not in your old family. Your identity is not in your birth family, your married family. Your identity is first and foremost in the family of God. And I want to encourage you to have that identity. That is critical in our time period because we need to be a people who understand we are in the household of God and there is a way then called the gospel that should come out of us that marks us as the church. And what we're going to do in this series is lay out some of those markings, lay out what those look like. And the first one is, is seen right here. It says that we are these people who honestly are a buttress to the truth, right? We, we, you just saw that. But what he's claiming is that the God's family knows and supports the truth. We are those who are going to know the truth of God and support the truth of God. We don't change it and we don't produce it. We know it and we uphold it. This is critical because in our culture, we want to shift the truth around according to what's out there. But no, no, no. Again, notice the church of the living God is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We uphold it. We strengthen it. We keep it. We don't change it. Our job is to know these beliefs and to stand firm in these beliefs and support these beliefs. Well, how do we do that? By loving, living, and sharing Christ. I mean, our very mission statement at all branches is to attempt to help you be a support and buttress to the truth. we got to love Christ, which means you're going to love the truth. You're going to love the gospel. You're going to know it. You're going to understand it. You're going to be loving this thing, and it's going to come out of you because you want to live it, and then you're going to share it. So you support the truth by loving the truth, knowing the truth. You support the truth by living the truth and illustrating the gospel and the truth, and you support the truth by spreading the truth, by spreading that gospel into the lives of other people so they too can love it and support it and live it and share it. And this goes on and on. And that's the goal of the church. That's how we want to reach the 200,000 plus people around us that don't know him. That's that's why we want to get engaged with everything that we can to live for Christ. But man, we got to be a church that illustrates the gospel. As the family of God, we need to know then and support this truth. Now, what truth am I talking about? Well, Paul's going to get into this because the truth he's talking about has a way of living and a knowledge to hold. And we love and live it. And ultimately, he's sharing it. And so here we see these three things. He begins as we continue on in our next verse here. It's actually verse 16. And he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So he says, look, we confess this. We say this is great indeed. This truth, and this truth is the mystery, the secret that's only given to the church of a word here, godliness. Now, godliness is a weird word. It can mean piety in some cases. Ultimately, it means a belief and action. It's a conduct in how we live. Some would say it's the mystery of our religion. And religion is really, hey, how you live out that relationship with God. And so what we see here is godliness is how you live out your relationship with God, how you live out what you know about God, what you know about God through Jesus Christ. And in fact, what he's going to get into now is lay out those very things that tell us what we're to believe. He, this is, he's going to get into this mystery, this truth that we've been given, and it's a summation of basic theology. 
And I believe everyone should know this text because it is a great summation of the basic truths that we believe that then live out through us a conduct, a way of living. And so let's look at these as we pick up and we continue on further. He says this, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That is a simple statement, even simpler in the Greek. But what I want to show you guys is it has profound implications for us loving Christ and living for Christ for illustrating the gospel. Because we've got to know the gospel. If we're going to know it, then it's going to come out of our lives. How can you live something you don't know, right? So here we go. What are we supposed to know? It says, well, he. Well, who's the he? Well, if you look in your Bible and you look up, it says he. The, 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 the word closest to that would be attached to is God. God himself was manifest in the flesh. Now, where is that going to happen? But we're talking about Jesus. You ever wanted a verse that talks about the fact that Jesus is God? There it is. God was manifested made visible. That's literally what the word means. The invisible was made visible in the flesh. You want to know what God looks like? You want to know what God acts like? Look at Jesus. He was the God in fleshed, incarnate. Even more interesting is this term manifested also is used to, to summarize Jesus coming in the flesh, Christmas birth, but also Easter, the resurrection, is the whole life of Jesus that we look at from his birth, cross, and resurrection. We go, this is who God is. It is his picture of love that Jesus Christ would bear your sins on the cross, that he would bear your shame and guilt for the rebellion against God, and he would break you free from the foreign evil thoughts and gods of this world on the cross and in the resurrection, give you new life, bring you into a new family, give you a new spirit, give you a new chance, and we get to live for him. That, that, that is all what this entire story says from his birth to the resurrection. And what we want to do is we want to celebrate that he was manifested in the flesh. Now, what would that look like? How do you live out this idea that God shows up in the flesh? What's well, called incarnation. And what I would challenge you to do is to realize that what God did was he didn't run away from problems. What God did is he actually, in his incarnation, made the gospel visible, made the gospel illustrated in his life, made himself known by running to the sinful earth, by coming to the broken planet, by coming to humanity who is messed up and rebelled and not running away. He had every right never to come and to judge us. But he chose not to. He chose in his grace and mercy to become human, to live a perfect life so that he could give us his righteousness so that we would be right before him, that the wrath that he was going to pour out on us would be taken by himself, and we would then be free to live for him. It's a, it's a love story as he's trying to woo us and call us to himself. But here's the interesting thing, that our job then is to do the same. As God drew near to us, as Christ drew near to us, so we go draw near to others. We go and incarnate in other countries, into our neighbors' lives, into people around us, and we need to run to the issues in people's hearts and lives. Not run away. We need to run to bring healing. We need to run to proclaim the gospel. We need to run to the issues. We cannot, in a dangerous world, close ourselves in like a bubble and look out of a church building at a world going to hell and go, well, yeah, there guys chose your, your directions. Guess we can't do it. No, we can do something. 
Let's get out of the bubble and go. Let's get to our neighbors. Let's get to connect with our coworkers. Let's bring the gospel of Jesus Christ and live it out by meeting needs of people in our lives. Let's go. That's how we live out this idea of Christ coming to us in the flesh. Now, it goes on. He says he was vindicated by the Spirit. This means that Christ was proven to be God through the Spirit's work. He was proven to be our Savior through the Spirit's work. And the Spirit did that through bringing miracles about in the life of Jesus, resurrecting Christ from the dead. These, these were attestations to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. He was God. And, and this is powerful because he does it through the church as well. right? The Spirit shows up at Pentecost. And in the miracles done and the tongues and the various things are done, it establishes the gospel for the people to hear and go, oh my gosh, God is real. He has really done something and I need to listen. And I believe that is what God's calling us to do today. You want to see him move. We need to step out, not just with arguments, not just with truth, but also in prayer and in action, trusting the Spirit of God's going to work by praying with our neighbors as we challenged ourselves at the beginning of the year, by praying with those around us, asking Jesus to show up and manifest in their life, right? We need to be there praying for the work of God to move. We're praying for the Spirit of God to bring miracles. We're praying for the Spirit of God to open hearts. We have got to this summer be engaged in prayer right there in your home. Keep lifting it up. Keep lifting up the church. Keep seeking your neighbors and keep praying for them and act and watch what God begins to do because our goal here is to see him proven by the work of the Spirit in our life. And that's indeed what the action will be. Now, Jesus goes on and says he was witnessed to. And, and what's interesting, he says he was seen by angels. Now, this is the kind of the oddest section. To be quite honest, there's two ways to take this. On one side, we indeed know that Jesus was witnessed by spiritual beings, the angelic beings. Um, these are God's um, servants, the ones who reign, with, reign under him as he leads and uses them on this earth. Well, one of the ways he did that is he sent some angels at the resurrection to set up and proclaim this manifestation. First, Gabriel tells you know, Mary and Joseph, then we have him, them show up, the angels show up at the tomb. What do they do? They proclaim, he's not here, he's risen. And so he was seen by angels. They watched him. They were interested. What is God going to do on earth? This is fascinating. But then there's another way to take this. The word angels also can be translated seen by messengers. And indeed, while there are heavenly messengers who have proclaimed that Jesus risen from the dead and the celebration that went on in heaven I'm sure was huge and probably still is happening but what happens is that these angels these messengers are also human messengers Paul kind of illustrates this in the book of 1 Corinthians found here it says for I delivered to you, as he's writing to the Corinthians, he says, guys, I'm giving to you something that I got. I also received it. It's first importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Now, that is Peter. It means the rock, right? Cephas is the Aramaic term for Peter. And then to the twelve. That's representing the twelve apostles. So Jesus appears to them. Now, it doesn't include the women here, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the you know, mother of Joseph and all these people. But when we look at this, we know there's one, okay, there's 12. We've got 12 people. He goes on. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. 
This is, at the certain, this is at his point where he's about to ascend. 500 people are seeing him alive. At one time, he appears to them, most of whom are still alive. He says, you can still talk to them at this time. He says, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. That's the brother of Jesus, who he knew was against Jesus being Christ and suddenly becomes the head of the church. And then he appears to all the missionaries, all the apostles. So there's even more. We can't even count that number. Now we're up to 513 plus, uh, who knows, maybe 520, maybe more than that. We don't know. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He says, he appeared to me, Paul. For I am the least of the apostles and worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now that's 500 over almost, that's a lot of human beings proclaiming that they saw Jesus alive. That, are, that is a group of witnesses who became messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul would go out and bring it to the nations. All the apostles would go out and bring it to the nations. The disciples would spread it to their areas. They would witness about what they had seen about Jesus. And this is the critical thing. What are you and I supposed to do? We are supposed to be those who witness. We have seen Christ work in our lives. I've had God give me visions I've seen him change my life by coming into my life. I've seen him work in answered prayer. And all of these things I can be a witness to the work of God in this world, the work of Jesus Christ in this world. And you can too. Your testimony is a powerful witness. What we mean by a testimony is who you were before you knew Christ, what Christ did as he drew you near to him, how he changed your life, and now how he's continuing to change your life. That is a testimony that you can give. You'd love to work on one. Simply go to crew.org, and this is Campus Crusade for Christ. They have a, a little way to help you develop your testimony. And you should develop this. You should learn how to share what God has done. You're a witness to it. Maybe it's not that story. Maybe it's the answers of prayers that he's given to you. One example is our elders. Just the other uh, two elder meetings ago had gathered together, and at the end of our time, we decided, hey, we, we really, really need to spend some time in prayer. And one of the convictions that was brought up is we need to pray for our upcoming worship arts director who's moving from Tennessee into Southern California here with us. His name is Brad. He's going to be starting uh, this week. I'm super excited about it. And, um, but he was, to be honest, having trouble getting into Corona. Let's, let's totally be honest, this is difficult territory to rent a home, to even buy a home. The prices are skyrocketed, right? The, the amount of people renting, every rental home is completely swamped and uh, taken up. Well, Brad and his wife, Maddie, they'd thrown down on, on one of them, spent a little bit of money in an area here in town and was like, and they were told, well, we don't know how it's going to go. 200 people have already put in on this. A dozen or so are, are, are good and they were one of them and they were, didn't even get to see the house. Their parents were doing all the work and coming over. And the night we prayed was the night that they decided, you know what, we're going to take Brad and Maddie into this home. And Brad and Maddie ended up being able to, or being able to move into this home because God's answering prayer. I mean, the odds of that were huge. And yet God answered that prayer, brought them into this place at the time that we needed so they could be here to beginning engaging in ministry here at the church. God loves to answer prayer. And that's just one account of the work of God in this world. And I just want to encourage you that you can share these stories where God answers your prayers, where God shows up in your life, of how He's taking the Scripture and applying it to you. Be a witness to those around you, your coworkers, your family members, your neighbors, and the, your, those who you get in conversation with. Because He's been witnessed in heaven and earth. 
And we get to be a part of that. Now, what's cool then is that we see that he's proclaimed in the enemy territory. Say the enemy, it says the nations, right. Now, if you were Jewish and you read this word nations, you'd read the word ethnos, which means Gentiles. And that would have made you go, Gentiles, right? That's kind of the attitude. These people aren't, aren't Jewish. They're, they're the Gentiles. And the idea behind this is that these are the enemy territory. They're, they are ruled by other gods. They have false beliefs. These are people who don't believe in Jesus and are actively against him. Well, exactly. He's proclaimed in the nations, be it places he's never been heard in Muslim territories, places he's never been heard in Hindu or Buddhist, Buddhist lands or communist lands. My friends, this is where the gospel gets proclaimed, and this is what the apostles did. This is what we do. We share Christ. We get out there, and we spread the gospel. We just witness to what he does. Now we proclaim it. We say, Jesus Christ has borne all of your sins. He's willing to take you in. He has conquered the gods who you are having to serve, and he is setting you free from the laws and the rules and all the rituals and the junk and trying like to feel like you have to be good. He sets you free from all the rules of secularism where you have to be good enough and look good enough and do good enough and be the right color and all this stuff. He says, no, I've wiped all that away. I accept you as you are. Come to me and I will lead you into life everlasting. I will show you how you are made and what you are made for. This is what we get to go proclaim. And what's beautiful is believed on in the world. It will be believed on in this spiritual darkness. Yes, there are gods and there are those who are fighting against us, but what we get is the chance to proclaim it and people will believe it. And so we just need to get out there and do it. We need to get out there and continue to proclaim the gospel. And we need to do that confidently because he was taken up in victory, in glory. This word glory in the Roman world in that time period was the highest thing you could have. It means that he was ruler. He was Caesar. He was Lord. He was over it all. And so we also see that Jesus won. The way I want to put it is Jesus is going to end up on the right side of history. Always. <laughs> He's got the glory. Everything that he does, the gospel and him is the right side of history. And as we see that, what you're going to discover is that Jesus is ruling and reigning. He's already the victor, and therefore we can be confident. Guys, if there's an action that comes out of knowing Jesus ascended into heaven, and he's now sitting at the right hand of the Father with all glory and power, he's won, the battle is over, we move out in confidence, no matter what happens to us, we win too. And I hope what that does is that encourages you not to give in to fear, but to go proclaim, to bring a knowledge of Christ in this world, run to the needs, make sure that we're praying and seeing the work of God act, witnessing to what he has done. Guys, this is our opportunity to illustrate the gospel. What a chance to know the truth. And I would argue you should dig in deeper to these thoughts and see how much they apply to our life and how we as Christians are going to manifest as God's family these characteristics. We're going to show off the gospel. We're going to be the gospel illustrated because he has been victorious and we can be confident as we go forward and we follow him. See, knowing these truths gives us a chance to live out these truths, but knowing these truths also does something else that Paul tells us. He says, living, knowing and living these truths keeps us in the family. You see, there is a danger. We live in a world that will indeed suck away your faith if it's not strong, if you're not knowing it and living it. Now, let me show you how he puts it. He continues on. There is a thing that can suck away your faith, and we need to be aware of that. 
And 1 Timothy here, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, puts it this way. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, that's the end times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now check this out. We live in the end times. Not just because, hey, you know, it might be the end. No, because Jesus has come. The end times in the Jewish mindset is after the Messiah. We are in the last days. We are in the end times. That means something. That indeed, since, the, since Jesus ended, guys, there are going to be people who depart from the faith. There may be some of us who are going to think other ideas are better. Other ideas are, are cooler. They're way more hip in this culture. And what I want to challenge you on is to be careful because here's the thing. We can be deceived today. We can be deceived and we need to know the truth. We need to live that truth in order to stay in this family, to know what Jesus has done for us, to be able to proclaim it, to be able to stand with it, to live it out, to see that God is actually working in us. Here's the thing, because you're not dealing just with witty humans. No, no, no. We're dealing with spirits and demons. You realize that these beings are real? That there are spiritual demons, spiritual beings that are trying to teach us things, to lead us in ideas, to change our minds about God. They don't want you to be scared of them. They want you to trust them and walk away from Christ. They want you to believe ideas that lock you away from Jesus, that make you self-righteous, that make you want to push away the kingdom of God. Their job is to fool you and deceive you, not to scare you. I appreciate the horror films, but come on, folks. These guys are teaching. And they're going to teach where the most influential people are. Why do we think some of the greatest ideas are coming out of universities where people are most prone to learn? Some of these teachings, these ideas are not coming from human beings. They're coming from demons and deceitful beings that they don't even know they're listening to. And I believe that because our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against human beings, but against the spiritual forces and powers in this world. They do indeed engage. They do indeed teach. And that means something, guys. We need to be aware of what's going on and what is being taught. And we need to know the truth so that we can see the lies. I find it fascinating that right now in the deep science areas where there's so much journal writing, the ID theory, the fact that there is somebody who's put information into this world is becoming so popular and so big as the answer to the quandaries in biology, astrophysics, and uh, cosmology that they're going, you know what, it just looks like there's a God. And what's fascinating, at the same time as science is beginning to proclaim this, in all of these hard sciences, the world has moved on and said, you know what, science, that's just some interpretation by some culture. We don't need to listen to that. Blah, blah, blah. Let's go over here. And we've literally shut our brains down from science. And with some of us who like science, we see that, oh, we can't trust scientists. We don't even know what to believe anymore. They just come out with all this stuff that's false. Don't you find it weird that just when science is about to proclaim that we've seen how it leads to God, that now we're ready to pitch science out of the, out of the window? I don't find that weird. Demons know what they're doing. They've been around a lot longer. They know human beings better than any of us. They're ready to set us up for a fall and take us away from Christ any way they can. Well, how do they do that? Well, they do it through winsome teachers, winsome surefire people who don't even realize that they're acting. And when they teach these false things, they don't even 
feel guilty because their consciences are seared. This is a scary verse. It can be interpreted two ways, these words. It can either mean that their conscience, what tells them they're right or wrong, or loyal to Christ or not loyal to Christ, right? They are seared or branded. Either way, it has an idea of being solidified. Now, if they were branded, it means that they're branded by the very deceitful spirits and demons that are teaching them. They're saying their hearts are welded to them, they're for them, bam, they're ready to go and promote the false teaching. Or it means that they are so hard-hearted at this point that they don't even realize they're sinning because you could show it to them and they would have an excuse because it doesn't convict their spirit. I see this over and over. People are getting set up by really winsome and charismatic people to believe lies because the demonic people will use them, the demonic spirits will use them in order to bring about these things and the, these people's consciences are seared. They're going to promote evil and call it good. They're going to promote falsehoods and say it's true. They're going to promote certain practices and tell you this is the way you have to live to be a Christian. That's what these guys are doing. Notice as it goes on, it says, these people forbid marriage and they require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So notice this is against the truth. And so, first of all, what they're going to do is they're going to do something important. They're not just going, hey, I go do whatever you want. There are false teachers that do that. But to be quite honest, Christians, if you're a true Christian, your spirit, your conscience is pricked and convicted about sin. And, I'll, and I'm going to tell you, if your spirit and your soul is not convicted, ask God to convict you now because you are not a Christian and you are in trouble. I don't want you to become a false teacher. I don't want you, but you to end up in hell. Ask God to convict you of sin. Open your soul up to wake your conscience back up so you can know what is good and right before God. Because otherwise, you're going to be trapped. You'll just run off and do sin, whatever you want. And you're not going to feel guilty for the pornography. You're not going to feel guilty for sleeping around. You're not going to feel guilty for, for telling people they can do certain things that abuses their body and damages who they are. You're not going to feel guilty for having the abortion. You're not going to feel guilty for going out there and engaging in, in lies and, and promoting things. Because you, you just won't care. It's not a struggle for you. However, Christian, hear me. If you know you've sinned, the danger comes when somebody offers you these strict rules that you can follow and defeat sin. You just don't get married and watch, you'll be a spiritual person. Abstain from foods and you'll be powerful. Now, this isn't saying we shouldn't fast and this isn't saying that some of us aren't called to, to stand and not be married, but they were forbidding it. They were saying, you really want to be spiritual? You really want to? This is how to do it. Do these five things, and wow, you're super spiritual. What they've done is they defeated the relationship that we're to have with Christ and instead placed in it rules. They've focused on the law to bind you up and to bind you so that your struggle with sin becomes the centerpiece of your spiritual life and not your relationship with God. You want to grow? Know Christ. Just go after Him. Get to know Him in the Word. Know the truth. See, we know the truth, so we know that we can eat whatever we need to. We can get married if we want to. This is what we've been free to. In fact, he goes on to tell you God has made the good. Enjoy the good. God made the good, so enjoy it. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. It's made holy by the Word of God in prayer. Now, People right there are like, yeah, that means I can smoke my marijuana. God made it. No, time out. God is declaring 
what, is, what he's made is good, but what is good, he's declared as good. He's told us not to be drunk. He's told us not to be people who are lacking sober-mindedness. He's told us that we need to be a people who are out there filled with the Spirit of God. We want to be in relationship with God, in a clear-minded relationship with God, and be after Him. But marriage and foods and other good things that are not said to stay away from in the Scriptures, man, thank God for them and enjoy them. Why do we want to live a Christian life that seems so miserable nobody wants to follow Jesus? No wonder heaven seems so boring because we don't enjoy the heaven that's given to us on earth. We should be the ones who praise God for the wonders of the flavors of the foods we get to eat, who praises God for the joys of the various cultures that are out there, but abstains from evil and flourishes in developing further goods that we thank Him for. But when we restrict ourselves from things that are clearly good because we think that makes us holy, we have missed out on what Christ is calling us to enjoy, which is his good. You see, and I'm saying this because some of you out there have fallen prey to the belief by false teachers and false, and false leaders that you, illustrating the gospel means you can't enjoy life. No, Jesus enjoyed life. Jesus enjoyed food. He enjoyed good friends. He enjoyed all of these things. As you can read about it, he enjoyed life and he blessed them before his father. And if it is good, man, we can enjoy it and we should enjoy it well before God. Because our goal is to bring people to know Him. Our goal is to present people the gospel and not a bunch of abstinence and rules and laws. And maybe you've been hung up on this. Maybe you were suddenly one of those people who rejected Christianity because you thought it was a bunch of rules. Can I just tell you right now, you heard it wrong. It's not about what you do. It's about what Christ did. It's what's been done. See, Christianity is about Jesus having manifested himself. He was God who came to save sinners like me and like you. Yeah, yeah, we're sinners. Our, our consciences should be broken. And if your conscience is broken, you know you've sinned. Hear some good news today. God does not want to kick you out of heaven. God does not want to keep you from the good. He wants to invite you to the true good. And he does, throw, does so through his son, Jesus Christ, who has borne your sins on the cross. He's borne your guilt on the cross. He's borne your shame on the cross because he wanted to make it right. He took the wrath of God and all the punishment we think we should get from God for the things we've done. And he says, no, I'll take it. I want you to have grace and mercy. And he gives you grace and mercy. The justice being done there, he then raises from the dead to give us new life as well. And here's what you need to do. Trust him. Do you trust God's promise to you? Do you trust that... God promises you if you will follow Jesus and you trust in Him, He will lead you into life. He will make you new. He will take your sins and remove them, wipe them away, and give you an opportunity to live life to its full in Jesus Christ as He has called you to join His story and His purposes for you. And if that's you, I want to give you a chance to receive that right now. Would you bow your heads with me wherever you're at? Just to pray this prayer. Say, God in heaven, I trust that Jesus Christ bore my sins on the cross, that he bore my shame and my guilt. I trust that you are giving me a new life through Jesus Christ's resurrection. And I trust you are bringing me into a new family. Would you come into my life and lead me now? I want to follow you. Bring me into that family that I can enjoy the good of this world. 
and help others do as well. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer with us today, would you let somebody know right now? Um, if you're watching this live, you have an opportunity right there in the sidebar. You can pull it up and just click that little hand raised and, and say, I made that decision. Maybe you're watching this with somebody. Let them know that you made this decision right now. Or you can simply text us this information here at the bottom and we will get a hold of you. We would love to help you move forward in this spiritual journey. It's a beginning, not the ending. Otherwise, church, let's be a people who know the truth. Let's be the family of God and let's have those distinct characteristics as we begin to set out to illustrate the gospel.